Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center and you can also find this link in the show notes. Today we will talk about a precious resource, very important for all of us, and that is water. We will talk about water and in particular about water security. Our guest today is Susanne Schmeier. Susanne is an associate professor of water law and diplomacy, and she's also the head of the water governance department at IHE in Delft in the Netherlands. And her research focuses on conflict and cooperation over shared natural resources, such as water, I assume, and the environment with a particular interest in water and the legal and institutional mechanisms at local, national, and international level to mitigate conflict and build long-term cooperation. She also applies this research in conflict resolution and mediation efforts in various regions of the world. Prior to joining IHE in Delft, she worked at the Gesellschaft für internationale Zusammenarbeit, GIZ, here in Germany. She worked for the World Bank, the Mekong River Commission, and also other international and regional organizations. So a very broad portfolio, both in academia, but also in the world of practice or practitioners. Welcome, Susanne, to this podcast. Well, thanks, Matthias. Thanks for having me. Now, we obviously all know how important water is. We use it every day for very different uh, purposes. Um, and often it's being said that it's the most precious of resources. So you focus on water security. Does that mean that we have to worry about the way water is going to be distributed in the future? I think it's definitely something that we should worry about. We're definitely overusing our water resources. In many parts of the world, we're unsustainably and inefficiently managing our water resources. Water is increasingly being polluted as well. So it's not only a question of amount or allocation, but also a question whether that water is actually available. And all that together can lead to, to security implications. But before we even talk about security implications, whether that might be conflicts between local water users or entire countries, I think it's also important to keep in mind the much more direct implications of insufficiently or unsustainably managed water resources for people. We should keep in mind that um, it's already now 4 billion people around the world that deal with water scarcity where they live for at least a month a year. It's 2 billion people around the world that have not access to adequate drinking water. And if we extrapolate that a little bit into the future with climate change, but also the continuous overuse and unsustainable management that we see around water resources, we know that in 2025 already, which is basically around the corner in two years, there'll be 50% of the population on Earth living in areas that face water scarcity. 
And many of them, not all of them, but many of them estimate, say, around 700 million will actually be forced to leave. They will be displaced because of water scarcity. So it's definitely something that should worry us because of the immediate impacts on people, on local communities, but also, and that's where the security dimension comes in, because of the potential repercussions that that can have in terms of competition and conflict. So you rightly said it's scarcity can mean lack of water, but it can also mean lack of healthy or safe water, of course, which essentially boils down to the same end effect, I suppose. So things are getting worse. Is that what I get from what you just said, rather than better? Yeah, that's unfortunately the case. So around the world in many places, we do see that water resources are being overused, mainly or A large water user is the agricultural sector. So we're using a lot of water just to produce the food we eat. It's about 70% on average of all water used on Earth is used for agriculture. And as populations grow and as we want to achieve, for example, the sustainable development goal on zero hunger, we do, of course, have to produce more food. But this comes with implications for water, especially as very often water resources are not used very efficiently for irrigation. There's a lot of loss in systems. There's inefficient irrigation systems. So we're losing water for something that is very, very much needed, food production, but it does have long-term implications for water security. Same, you, we just talked about briefly pollution. There is water resources that are being increasingly polluted, which make them unfit for human use. We're also using water resources in a way that doesn't necessarily deteriorate the resources, the, the water itself, but still has impacts on, on local populations and on ecosystems such as uh, hydropower, for example. With the push towards clean energy, there is a rush to build more hydropower dams in different parts of the world. And of course, that totally makes sense from a both climate mitigation, but also adaptation perspective to have more storage capacity. But especially if these projects are not well planned and not well designed, they come with all sorts of environmental, but then also social implications. So things are, at least when it comes directly to the state of the world's water resources, definitely getting worse. Yeah, and I think it's also a matter of who gets the benefit, right? Uh, when you mentioned the the dam, I just immediately thought about the conflict between Ethiopia and Egypt, I think, over the dam that Ethiopia has constructed uh, that will um, take away a lot of the water that flows into the Nile. And there is a, a conflict that hasn't so far, but might even potentially escalate militarily, as far as I understand. Now, this podcast looks at these issues, geopolitical issues, international relations from a business perspective. So if you look at business, what do you think businesses can and should do to help mitigate some of these uh, scarcity issues that you have highlighted? It's an interesting question because on the one hand, businesses are, of course, at the center, at the heart of many of these developments, right? Irrigation schemes and, and agricultural production sites are often owned by, well, businesses. Sometimes they're more, more state-owned, but they're owned by businesses, often actually originating from outside of the actual country where the food is produced. It's often hydropower companies or investment companies that are involved in the construction of dams. So they're at the center of all of that. At the same time, it seems to me that businesses do not play a very active role when it actually comes to engaging in whatever implications their actions might have. So you do see, if we stick to the example of dams, for example, investments in, into dams around the world by private investors or by, by public-private consortia 
they they basically act in the framework that is there, not worrying too much, it sometimes seems to me, about the implications of their actions on others. But then also, of course, it comes here that the relationship between businesses, foreign investors on the one hand, and the recipient state or the host state on the other hand. And often you hear businesses argue, well, we just comply with the legislation that the, the host state has. So if the host state might not be requiring, for example, a certain quality of environmental impact assessments or certain social measures if you resettle people or if there are certain social consequences of a project, there is not really something that you could blame, so to say, the, the businesses for. But still, I would always argue that as a business, you should be concerned with, with your environment and what's happening around you and maybe see how you can make a difference there. Also, because ultimately, if disagreements, conflicts, tensions occur over these projects, they'll also affect the investment in the long run. Now, you mentioned some trade-offs. So sometimes you will have to decide whether you want to use water for agricultural production or you may want it for production of electricity. So sometimes maybe there are real trade-offs. But you also mentioned that in particular in, in agriculture, water is not used very efficiently. So there is a lot of loss. Does that mean that water is too cheap generally around the world? So there is not that much of an incentive for the producers, farmers, or you know whether they be small or, or large agricultural companies, to act sustainably, should water be more expensive if it is so scarce? I think that's that's a very difficult question, and I would certainly not argue in favor of of pricing water. I mean, if at all, then what is being priced is the provision of water and the services around it, and not the water itself. But there, I think one has to be really careful. Because yes, there should be incentives for using water more efficiently, but it is very difficult to do that in a way that remains equitable and that does not have negative effects. I'll, I'll give you an example. I've been working quite a bit on, on Iran and what we're seeing there, but also in many other countries, is that the loss, especially in agriculture, is extremely high. At the same time, the water situation is deteriorating. People have to drill deeper and deeper wells. People are taking more and more from local streams and rivers. And the government has been struggling to, to limit that because they're seeing the, the paths where that's leading. But as soon as you introduce, for example, a certain price for, for irrigation for water, that immediately has very, very severe social effects because farmers, it's difficult to speak of the farmer. There might be very poor farmers that are just living at the subsistence level. And then there might be huge farming corporations, sometimes in case of Iran, also owned by the government and other countries, also even external or international investors that have very different capacities to cope with that. And what we've seen in Iran, but also in other countries, is that some farmers had to give up their farming, had to give up their farms, migrated to the city, are of course unskilled labor, mainly work as taxi drivers and then jobs like that, which has significantly contributed to social cohesion issues and social tensions. So I think this this quick jump to let's make water more expensive, then it's going to be used more efficiently is, is a bit too simple. And even knowing that there should be a more socially just system, if one was to introduce something like water pricing, is in practice really, really difficult to implement. 
And where we've seen that being implemented, um, think of also Cochabamba years ago in Latin America, where water pricing was introduced, but also other countries. This has very, very often led to protests, sometimes even violence, and makes governments such as the Iranian, but also others, of course, also fear for their own legitimacy. I mean, I understand that that raises all sorts of questions, social questions, equitable access and so on and so forth. But isn't that quite similar in a certain way to other resources? I think of fuel, for example, many countries, especially developing countries, have extremely low fuel prices with essentially the same arguments that, you know, of course, it would be good to raise the prices for environmental reasons and others as well, pollution and so on and so forth. But it's it would not be socially acceptable. The same with electricity, I think. So is, is that something that you believe is unique to water or is it something that applies to a lot of basic goods in a certain way is that, uh, yes, on the one hand, if they are cheap, that's good in terms of access, but it also means that people don't really value the resources in the way they should? I think water is different here simply because it is the most basic need that we have as humans. Think about how long can you live without fuel? How long can you live without electricity? For some while, I would guess. But if you think about how long you can live without water or without the food that's being produced from water mm. and all the other services that water provides, right? Think about COVID and hand washing, hygiene, all these things. I think that makes water very different. Now, you mentioned business. I asked you about business, the role of businesses, and you said, well, you know, generally, I think at least that's the way I interpreted you. They're not that helpful. But are there also examples maybe of successful, say, public-private partnerships, for example, that have helped this topic or increase water security in a particular part of the world? Definitely. I think there are a lot of examples. Um, and that's why I think it's great that this podcast is talking about it, because I think they, they need to be disseminated more and maybe find some more followers. There, there are a lot of examples, um, not only public-private partnerships, but let me give you a few Like generally. I'm thinking, for example, of the International Hydropower Association. It's an association of, well, as the name says, hydropower companies that have developed a hydropower sustainability assessment protocol. So it's a protocol that you can use before you even plan a dam or while it's being constructed or later also while it's being managed to check a number of sustainability criteria on the environmental and the social side. And they've been working and are still working hard to make that some sort of standard in, in the industry and increase, of course, then also the peer pressure for different companies to, to comply with these standards. And what we're seeing now is that there are very, very different sustainability standards among hydropower companies often also depending on where they come from. With companies from, let's say, the, the global West, but also other parts of the world, having been pushing for sustainability standards, but that not necessarily making them the, the most attractive partners for a lot of countries. I'm thinking of Southeast Asia in the Mekong River Basin, where a lot of dams are being developed, nine on the Mekong mainstream and more than 100 on the Mekong tributaries. And there it's mainly Chinese, to some extent also Malaysian and Vietnamese, but mainly Chinese investments. And what we're seeing there is that there is very limited compliance with any sustainability standards, which of course also makes it attractive for the for the host governments, right? It's, it's much easier to get these projects. There are no requirements. It's not like, for example, if you get funding for such a project from the World Bank and need to comply with all sorts 
loads of environmental safeguards and you have to deal with your neighbors and your civil society and all of that. So that, I think, is, is something that's a challenge that the International Hydropower Association is really trying to address and bring in hydropower companies really from around the world. So that, for me, is one good example to stay in the, in the dam and hydropower business. There are also some really good examples where hydropower companies, together with international financiers, have engaged in really good social programs around dams. I mean, dams typically come with some sort of resettlement, but then the question is how that's being managed, how people are being compensated, and how you can make sure that their situation afterwards is better than before. And there are companies such as uh, Statcraft, a Norwegian company, that have done way more than they would have needed to do according to the books when it comes to, to certain social programs. So I think there are, there are good examples out there. I would just hope that more businesses engage, but also that countries and the international communities hold businesses more accountable for that. And there, I think I'm seeing some change. I was just a few weeks ago in New York at the UN Water Conference the first one in nearly 50 years. And I was very positively surprised to see how many businesses were actually present and not only were present, but actively committed to the non-binding, but still the commitments that came out of the, the conference. Could technology, technological advances also play a role in helping mitigate water scarcity? Definitely, definitely. I think that's that's maybe the only way forward. If we look at irrigation technologies, for example, there is highly efficient irrigation technologies coming out of Israel, for example, which is really leading in, in this type of business. Or there's amazing flood protection ideas and innovations coming out here of the, the Netherlands. So I think there is a lot and maybe there should be even more developed, but that also needs to be disseminated around the world. I find it interesting that you mentioned these two countries and uh, what immediately came to my mind here is that the saying necessity is the mother of invention, right? So you have Israel, a country that has very little water, so they had to basically develop those technologies if they wanted to grow something, agricultural products uh, in their country. And the same obviously is true with the Netherlands, with, with the dams and a significant percentage of the Netherlands is below the water level, current water level. So probably that will increase in the future as water levels rise. So it's sheer necessity that they became so good at these things. Is that maybe also something that would argue for a more market-based solution? I know that you were not a big fan of pricing of water, but you know, if the necessity is big enough, then change will follow and also innovation will follow in certain ways. I think definitely... There is a need for market-based solutions. I think they just need to be framed or put within the context of, let's say, a more social, equitable market system, right? Because, yes, Israel had to produce food and therefore invested a lot in water efficiency because they don't have a lot of water. Here in the Netherlands, we had to invest in for decades, for centuries, in flood protection. But in both cases, there was also the money to do so because the economies were generally quite strong beyond the water sector and there were the companies, the businesses, also the research landscape, the innovation landscape available to do that. And if you compare, for example, the, the flood management we have here in the Netherlands and would expect something similar to develop in the Delta in Bangladesh which is in a, in a very similar situation with a large part of the area below sea level, um, huge flood damage every year. 
I'm not sure that would automatically happen because the need for the people is definitely there. Same for the Mekong Delta in, in Vietnam. It's not the lack of, of acknowledgement that there is a problem. So I think it needs a, a framing so that the market can also really do its job. We talked a little bit earlier about potential conflict arising uh, around or based on the distribution of water. I mentioned uh, the one between Ethiopia and Egypt. Are there other examples around the world where there is really either actual or potential conflict around the uh, distribution and the sharing of water resources? Yeah, it's it's an important topic and I think we see it a lot in the media with, you know, policymakers and, and others warning of water wars and conflicts. I think the picture is a bit more nuanced and we have to differentiate maybe in two ways. One would be local or subnational versus international level and the other one would be conflict or violence. So if we start with maybe the second one, Yes, there is conflict. And we also see in research that we're doing here at IHE Delft together with Oregon State University that these conflicts are increasing, but they're not necessarily violent. In fact, at least at the international level, there has never been in modern history any violent conflict or even war between countries over water. We might have come close to it with the Egypt-Ethiopia um, example that you gave. There have also been threats uh, about 10 years ago from Uzbekistan against Tajikistan over Rogun Dam, which the then Uzbek president had also hinted he would like to blow up. But we have never really seen violence there. It's a bit different at the local level, which brings me to the second differentiation that I think we need to make, where there are instances of violence. Think, for example, of conflicts between farmers and herders in the Sahel area, both um, in Niger, Chad, Mali, and that area, but also in East Africa, Sudan, South Sudan, where there have been clashes between different types of water users who also depend belong to different ethnic groups, different religious groups. And there we have seen violence. Of course, there you would need to debate how much of it is actually water related and how much is maybe related to religion or ethnicity. But there we're seeing violence. But overall, both for international and national, we can say that yes, there is conflict, but there is way more cooperation. And I think that's the takeaway message that we often don't talk about, maybe because it's not as exciting. Uh, there's so much more cooperation, right? There's 313 international river and lake basins, so basins shared between countries, and more than 300 aquifers, so groundwater bodies. And we can think now of Ethiopia, Egypt, we can think of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, although that is somewhat settled, and we can maybe think of Iran, Afghanistan, where we've seen conflicts with some sort of level of approaching violence. But that's three out of 313. So generally, cooperation prevails. That's good news, I think. Uh, something Indeed. that I also didn't know, because as you rightly said, this idea about wars uh, on water is something that has been perpetuated by the media for a long time. So it's good to hear that that is more fiction than anything else. You were involved with the Mekong River Commission, so that's one example. Maybe you can share a little bit of your experience with, with the listeners. So how does this work? I mean, how, how do we have to imagine something like the Mekong River Commission? How many countries are involved there in the first place? I, I don't even know that. 
<laughs> yeah, so the Mekong is shared by six countries. If we look from upstream to downstream, it's China, Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. The four downstream countries, which really share the main part of the basin, yeah, the, the share in Myanmar is minimal, the share in China is also relatively small. So the four downstream countries have already in the 50s actually decided that they wanted to cooperate to jointly manage and develop the resources because they figured out that unilateral development would not get them very far anyway, because similar to what we discussed earlier, they were lacking the financial resources, the technology, the research to do that each by their by themselves, but also because they were back then already concerned about the negative implications that dam building, for example, in one country would have on, on another one. So they've been cooperating ever since. And the Mekong River Commission, which is the latest um, organization established in 1995, is really an international organization. It's like a mini United Nations for the Mekong, where the countries come together, exchange, share data and information, which is very important, for example, for flood management, but also for other purposes, and try to develop a joint approach to the basin. And to link that to the topic we just discussed on conflict, what has happened there is quite interesting to see how cooperation in the end prevails, because there was a situation quite similar to, fix, for example, Ethiopia, Egypt, where Laos proposed in 2010 a dam on the mainstream. And Vietnam and Cambodia as downstream countries were very concerned about the implications that would have not so much on the flow itself. So nobody feared that there would be no water anymore but more of the impacts in terms of fish migration. Fish is extremely important for food security in the region and all the fish that are economically viable and also important for food security migrate. So if there's a dam, the fish gets stuck, which impacts the population, of course, but also sediment transport. So the fear that sediments would get stuck behind the dam would not make it to the Mekong Delta and not deposit there, which would make the Delta sink even faster than it's doing anyway with sea level rise. So a situation where you could have expected, because it's so similar to Egypt, Ethiopia, for example, a conflict to arise. However, the countries took that to the Mekong River Commission. So they are little mini United Nations for the, for the river. And yes, there were tensions. Yes, people were upset at points. Yes, people were shouting. But in the end, it was always kept in this institutional context. Every three months, the people met from the different countries. It was discussed what would be potential mitigation options. Can we build fish migration paths, fish ladders, Again, technology here really comes in. Can we come up with fish-friendly turbines? Also an, an innovation that was developed um, by a number of actually European turbine companies. How can we flush sediments? How can we better warn the population of changes in the water level? And ultimately, dams, the changes to the dam have indeed been introduced. We don't know yet whether they're effective. So there might and there probably will be significant implications on, on food security still that somehow have to be mitigated. But at least the conflict never escalated to an extent that would have threatened relations between states um, and with, with all the repercussions that comes with in terms of trade relations, cultural relations, political relations and so on. That's absolutely fascinating. And it's interesting that obviously these good news often don't make it outside you know, very narrow circle. So I would assume that uh, from our listeners, very few probably have heard of uh, this, uh, unless, you know, you happen to be from that region or be involved very much in the topics that you are involved in. 
Whereas when things threaten to escalate, such as with Egypt and Ethiopia, of course, then they they do make news. And I find this fascinating that you said that they've been cooperating since the 50s. And I know that these countries that you mentioned, they have had a very varied and sometimes also rocky relationships with each other in other areas. But still, they seem to be able to maintain that, that cooperation. That is uh, quite interesting. A bold prediction. The world in 10 years. Susanne, we have one segment in our podcast and uh, there we ask our guests to make a bold prediction and to look 10 years into the future. As difficult as this may be for most topics, uh, yours included, uh, I would still like to ask you or invite you to give us your prediction when we talk about water security in 10 years, where will the world stand? Difficult question, especially because I'm typically an optimist but unfortunately not on that topic. I think we're not doing very well. We're way behind uh, achieving the Sustainable Development Goal 6 for water. We see our water resources deteriorating pretty much everywhere in the world. And that is without climate change. If you put climate change on top of that, I think things are deteriorating even faster. So what we'll see is that there'll be regions around the world in different places, but mainly obviously along the Sahel, South Asia corridor, Middle East and North Africa, of course, where people will just struggle to survive with the water or the lack of water resources that, that they're facing. Food security will be threatened. That will, of course, also affect global food prices. And I think we'll see um, not full-fledged conflicts or violence, but we'll see little competition or conflicts or localized violence over water resources in different parts around the world. We'll see people migrating or people being displaced because of water. And I think what's important to keep in mind, especially also for businesses or for anyone who's not typically involved with water, is the consequences that this can have on, on everyone's life, on investments, on the world economy, on trade, on instability, refugee migration movements, and so on. So Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not as optimistic as I would love to be. Fair enough. Uh, I mean, that's uh, what they say is uh, at least, you know, you, you're not going to be disappointed uh, if you're a little bit more pessimistic. But does that mean that you still think that we will be able to solve these issues or do you fear that we have reached some kind of a point of no return here? I don't think we'll be able to solve them, but I think we'll be able to manage them somewhat and to adapt That will, however, require massive engagement of all sorts of actors, including the private sector and businesses, which is why I said I was so pleased to see so many of them in New York at the UN Water Conference. It will require massive investments from both private and public sources. And it will require, I think, also new ways of managing water resources, finding ways, and I'm sure that is something where really innovation is needed, to manage the trade-offs that we see. The way we now grow food, produce energy, and so on, cannot continue with the water resources as we have them today. So we do need innovative solutions to, yeah, to, to reuse water, to better manage our water resources, but also innovative solutions to deal with the, the social and societal consequences. How can we mitigate potential tensions that will arise necessarily when we're making tough decisions on who gets how much water, when and, and where? And of course, there will be a deterioration in, in many parts of the world. I mean, we're also seeing this in Europe now with the low flows of our rivers that we've been facing for the last several years. So adaptation to that will also be required. We won't 
be able to continue living in the world as, as we do now. We mentioned technology earlier, innovation that came from technology, for example, for irrigation in agriculture. Do you see other major breakthroughs that could be game changers? I mean, desalination, for example, is not a new technology, of course, and I understand it's also quite difficult uh, or has its uh, problems. But are there any things that could potentially alter the water equation in a fundamental way? I think it's not the one and only thing. I think thing. I think it's a lot of small solutions. Diesel can be an option in certain areas, but it is extremely costly and energy intensive, and therefore often ruled out. It's irrigation efficiency. It's building better, more sustainable, less impactful dams. It's reconsidering where we build dams. It's definitely water efficiency technology also in in cities and households. We know that, for example, in cities such as Tehran, about a third of the water is lost in pipes before it even reaches the consumer. So I think that's definitely also something where, where work can be done. But it's going to be many, many different and very localized solutions that, that will be needed. Do you see changes also in the types of uh, agricultural production? For example, different crops that need less water? Definitely. Um, I mean, crops that need less water and also crops that are adapted to where they're being grown. Growing almonds in the desert, as, as is often said, is definitely not a solution. So changing crops, investing also again in, in research and innovation in more resilient crops that can also withstand maybe weeks of drought and are more resistant than other crops is, is definitely a solution. But also maybe for all of us as consumers, thinking when we stand in the supermarket and we take that cucumber or that avocado or whatever it is to think a little bit where it comes from and whether it's the best place to produce that. Okay, so no avocados, no cucumbers, or at least not from certain areas. Is that uh, what you're saying? Yes, I mean, if you buy water-intensive crops, grapes, for example, that come from South Africa, you can wonder what implications that have. Although, again, here the world is always more complex than we think, because, of course, the South African economy, such as many others, depends a lot on these agricultural exports. So just saying, I'm not going to buy that anymore is maybe also not the solution. So, again, here, trade-offs okay. are to be made. It's difficult, yeah. And, and meat, by the way, right? I think meat production is also quite water-intensive, if I'm not Meat wrong. is the worst. So if you want to start somewhere, start with beef and pork okay <laughs> so better eat avocado toast than uh, eat a, a chicken sandwich or, or or a schnitzel okay executive briefing what you should read now we ask our guests to come up with one two three reading recommendations for those listeners who really want to dive a bit deeper into the subject matter. So what can you recommend to our listeners here? There's one report that I would recommend that just recently was published by the Global Commission on the Economics of Water. It was developed in the context of the UN conference that happened in March. It's called Turning the Tide. And it really looks into Yeah, as the name says, the economics of water, but also the new challenges that we're facing when it comes to how the world uses water. And it looks into how water is a public good and how a global public good actually and should be managed in that way, also not only at the more local level, but also by the international community and what that means in terms of how we use water in our economies. So I think that's probably for your listeners very interesting. 
And if people are specifically interested in water conflict, I would recommend the Water Peace and Security Partnership a website just being waterpeacesecurity.org that deals a lot with uh, local water conflict and looks into how to analyze them, but also provides a global overview and forecast of water-related conflict potential over the next 12 months in a, in a very easy-to-grasp, straightforward map. Excellent. Yeah, we'll make sure to put those recommendations in our show notes so that listeners can go there and uh, find those publications there. I mean, what I get from this conversation is that, well, as most issues actually that we discuss here, water is rather complicated. It has its trade-offs. It's multifaceted. There are no, there's no panacea. There's no kind of one-shot solution, but there's many different things. But still getting back to the connection between business and water or looking at the issue through the lens of business. If you had one or two, maybe even three wishes for businesses on how they should address these issues in the future, what would they be? I think one would be think about your water footprint and how as a business, no matter how small or big, you can reduce your fo water footprint. And often that's that's relatively simple things that can be done. Where do you source your resources and so on? And by the way, I think that's also a great way to market products. I mean, I think there is a growing group of consumers, especially also in the, in the younger generation, that puts a lot of emphasis and a lot of interest into this. So think about your water footprint and then also be proud if you reduced it. And I think the other one is see, of course, that doesn't apply to all business businesses, but see how businesses can engage in in innovations and new technologies in research that can help address some of the, the water challenges. But then also, and that maybe not only applies to businesses, but to all of us, make sure you push your policy makers, your local or your national or whatever politician with whom you maybe as a business are in particularly close contact to set the right framework within which water is being managed effectively and sustainably, which ultimately doesn't only benefit the people that depend on the water resources and the ecosystems, but also the businesses that rely on a, on a stable environment. That seems to be an excellent closing statement uh, on a topic that is extremely important to all of us because we all depend on water daily, as you rightly said. It's uh, one of the most important things that we need. We can't go long without water, and so we need to protect it and ensure that we all have access, not just today, but also in the future. Susanne, thank you very much for this interesting conversation. And uh, we all hope, obviously, that your a bit gloomy prediction for the world in 10 years will not be true. So we, when we get back, maybe we'll have another podcast episode with you in 10 years. Then we will be in a better place than maybe it looks today. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.